the gap between the lifestyle of the Bible-believing Christian and the lifestyle of the average American, the gap has never been wider than it is today. I'll say that again because I want, if in case you missed it, I want you to get that. The gap between the lifestyle of the Bible-believing Christian and the lifestyle of the average American who is not a Bible-believing Christian, the gap between the two lifestyles has never been wider than it is right now. Let me put it this way. If you're going to make any effort to live like a Christian, to live a holy life as the Bible clearly sets it out, it will never be more obvious if you really live like God says to live. It will never be more obvious or has never been more obvious to the people around you than it will be right now. No, we don't. Our ladies don't wear burkas. We don't wear long robes, men, and so forth. There's nothing unusual about our appearance. It's simply that if you live decently, cleanly, and dare I say traditionally, conservatively, more and more, the people around you are going to look and say, what's the deal with that? You're getting married without living together first? What's the deal with that? You're staying married? for You're celebrating 40 years of marriage? I mean, anymore. You've been married 20 years? What's up with that? See what I'm saying? More and more, the gap between Bible-believing Christians and the average person in society is getting wider and wider. So that if you're going to live the basic, God-pleasing Christian life, you're going to be more obvious than you've ever been before. I'm not talking even about being a, uh, you know, some sort of an outgoing fanatic. I'm not talking about going to the break room at work and standing up on a table and preaching, which, by the way, I'm against. But... I should clarify that there might be some cases where it would be acceptable. I just, I just don't think that's the normal mode of Christian life. I think you'll accomplish a lot more by just living for Jesus at work. But anyway, but I'm not talking about being a nut or a freak. I'm just talking about living the way God says to live. And it wasn't that long ago that you would have fit in very Nicely with the majority of people in the American society. Now, there's quite a difference between you if you're trying to live as a set-apart Christian. There's quite a difference between your lifestyle. Because if you're living for God, there's things that everybody does that you won't do. If you're living for God, there's places that everybody goes. By the way, it wasn't long ago that everybody didn't go to those places. But now everybody goes to those places. Everybody does those things. 
And you don't because, man, I'm trying to live for God. There's words that everybody says that you don't ever say. And so the difference has become more obvious than it's ever been before. Well, what's, what's the cause of this gap between the lifestyle of the Bible-believing Christian and the world that leaves God out? What's the, what's the cause of this gap? Well, Psalm 36, if you're there, in verse number 1, tells us. It was at the very end of what we read a few minutes ago, Romans 3, verse 18. But it is stated, almost the exact same phrase is stated in Psalm 36 and verse number 1. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. Now this is David talking. And David says, when I look at the lifestyle, and transgression means breaking the rules. He said, when I look at the way wicked people break the rules... It tells me, it says, saith within my heart. It tells me that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we'll get to that phrase before their eyes in just a minute, but let's focus on that. There's no fear of God. See, it wasn't too long ago in our society where if you talk to somebody about coming to church... Here's, here's the response you get a lot. Well, I'm not a very religious person, but I am a God-fearing man. Even if you, you, know, if you watch older television shows and movies, I mean, you're going to hear that on a regular basis. Well, Marshall, I'm a God-fearing man. I mean, it, it, it's woven into the fabric of our society not that long ago. But you don't hear people say that so much anymore. And therein is a root cause of this gap that exists in the way you live and act and believe and the way that the rest, the majority of the rest of society believes. I don't want to take your time this morning to give you examples. I think you know the examples. I referred to marriage. I think that's enough. To help you to say, yeah, (laughs) society has drifted quite a bit. And if you're trying to live for God, you don't drift with society. So why has society drifted? To where the things that their parents understood, they don't understand. The things that their grandparents, can I tell you something? The Bible-believing Christian isn't even as conservative today as their grandparents were. And yet they don't get it. I don't know. You, you, you're going to get married without, without living together for a while? No, no you, you got to be kidding me. I mean, that's the, you know good and well, that's the common opinion today. And that's one of 20 examples that any one of us could rattle off because you get it at work. You get it at school. You get it in, in your family. You get it as you interact with people. People don't get when you live the, way, the basic way that God says live. Why is that? There is no fear of God. What does that mean? For one thing, it means that they don't factor the existence of God into their world view. 
When they're looking and they're defining, well, this is, this is how I think life is. This is how I think everything falls into place and how everything should be. They don't factor God in. He's, he's not even a factor. In the Bible, there's a story about uh, right after the flood of Noah. God told Noah and his sons to spread out. God's in the, in the splitting up and spreading out business. And, and God said, I want you to spread out. Don't, don't collect in one place. Spread out. Multiply. Actually, divide to multiply, if that makes sense. Split up. Keep moving. And there came a guy, and he's got a great name, a guy named Nimrod. And Nimrod is, is talking to his neighbors one day. And he says, you know, we, we were in this thing of dividing and spreading out, dividing and spreading out, multiplying, replenishing the earth. Can you imagine what would happen if we would just sort of gather in one place for a little while? And if we would share our resources and we could, for one thing, we, we, could, we could all be wealthy. We could barter. We could, we could work together. And we could build a tower to the sky. The Bible says they began on this plan. The Bible says the Lord came down to take a look around. And God said, this is, this is not what I commanded you to do. And by the way, this is not what is most productive for you. Can we not agree that the urban philosophy is not the most successful on our planet? And God says, this is not, this is not what I told you to do, and this is not going to work out well for you. God didn't come down and judge them. He didn't punish them. He just made it impossible for them to continue. God knows how to do stuff. And in the snap of a finger, various groups of, of, at Babel that were supposed to have divided and moved on, various families were speaking different languages. Now, in case you're sitting there saying, Pastor, I, it, that, that sounds like a fairy tale. Now, you're going to have to decide what you believe. Do you know John Nelms, who has been all over the world in third world countries and has missionaries all over the world? We support him, and he's spoken here several times. John Nelms says his missionaries have gone into remote places on the planet who know nothing of civilization, but all they know is way back when Everybody spoke the same language. And they actually have etchings of the Tower of Babel. That's how far removed they are from civilization. And that's their last known connection with history. You're going to have to decide whether you believe the Word of God or not. But that story is consistent with what the Bible says. God changed their languages. Why? So the contractors, they couldn't work together anymore. They weren't getting their specs right anymore. They were the game plan. You know, they, were, they couldn't all follow the same blueprint. Why? Because suddenly uh, one guy is speaking uh, German and another guy is uh, speaking English and another guy is speaking Spanish and uh, another guy is, is uh, speaking Arabic and, and they couldn't, they, we can't work together. We don't know what's going on. Nobody can communicate with each other. 
And so they were forced to abandon Babel and move on. How did they come to that place of taking the instructions that God had given to Noah and turning it into this new plan? So, hey, let's just all congregate and work together and build this tower and have a big population. How did they get there? They didn't factor God into their worldview. Do you know what is scaring me about all? Not every single one of them, but a majority of the people no matter what their party, who are running for president next year. We're not hearing a lot about where God fits into things. Well, pastor, it's called separation of church and state. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, in March, my family and I went to Washington, D.C. We arrived on Monday evening. We left Wednesday morning. During that time, I am not exaggerating, we heard at least seven, probably more like ten different people, congressmen, senators, tour guides, all who didn't interact with each other. This wasn't a game. In other words, Brother Harding, who spoke here a couple months ago, it wasn't orchestrated. He invited this guy to speak at this point in this place, this guy to speak in this place, this guy to talk in this place. And so these guys, though they knew each other or knew of each other, they didn't orchestrate what their message was going to be. And I, I guarantee you at least seven, probably more like ten different times in their talk, they said, let me tell you a story. As if they were telling us a story we hadn't heard because they didn't know we'd already heard it. Let me tell you. So it was right. The first speaker... Monday night was a, a United States congressman from North Carolina, born-again Christian, got saved riding a bus when he was a kid. He gave his testimony of salvation. Amen. Let me tell you a story, he said. And he told us how after we had won independence and our founding fathers were gathered in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, things started to get a little messy. It was not an easy time. As they were trying to hammer out the details, it's one thing to say, okay, we've won independence from Great Britain. It's another thing to actually establish a working government. And it was a rocky road, and it wasn't going all that well at this particular point. And so on one day where tempers were flaring and, and people were out of ideas and nobody could, they couldn't seem to find resolutions to issues, who stands up but the man that we're all told today was the least godly of all of them? Benjamin Franklin, that's what they tell us. Benjamin Franklin stands up and says, gentlemen, he was the elder statesman. You know, some of these men were 30 years old. Some of these, these founding fathers were 35 years old. In fact, most of them were younger men. Benjamin Franklin stands up. He's the elder statesman. Everyone respects him. And he says, gentlemen, we seem to have hit a difficult time. He said, I want to call us back to the root of our founding. He said, we were founded in prayer. He said, I make a motion that we suspend our discussions for the rest of the day and spend the rest of the day in prayer before God asking for his guidance and his direction. The man 
Monday night told that story, congressman from North Carolina. We heard a number of congressmen and senators speak on Tuesday. Again, each of them independently. They would come in out of the legislature, make a speech, and go back into the legislature, make a speech to about 500 of us gathered there in the congressional auditorium. And several of them, as, as they got up, they'd make their speech and they'd say, let me tell you a story like, like we'd never heard it before. Benjamin Franklin stood up and I guarantee you we heard that story seven times, probably more like ten times. Why? Because Christian legislature, legislators, congressmen, senators, they understand that we were built on a worldview that feared God. And it really worries me. You know, it's amazing, you know, the big question that you're, if you talk politics, there's one question that's going to come up quickly right now. What do you think about Donald Trump? And it's crazy, the answers you get. I don't know, I, I kind of like him, but I don't really know what to think. I mean, I've heard that so much. I kind of like him, but I don't really know what to think. You say, what do you think, Pastor? I, I kind of like him, but I don't know what to think. Um, <laughs> i tell you what worries me about him and a number of the other candidates. I want to hear about what does God say? Say, who's your guy? I don't know who my guy is, but I'll tell you what. I saw Marco Rubio. I didn't just say that's my guy. I'm saying I saw Marco Rubio at one point and a, an interview by saying, could I read something from my favorite book? And the interviewer said yes, and he pulled out his Bible and he opened it up. And I said, wow, that's refreshing. Somebody that is putting God into their, hey, you're going to lead our country. I want you to have some connection to God, and I want you to at least consider God in your estimation of things. There's no fear of God before their eyes. What's it mean? It means they don't uh, factor the existence of God into their worldview. It also means that they don't factor the Word of God into their decisions. In the book of Jeremiah, the nation of Israel was almost exactly in their history, actually Judah to be technical, was almost exactly in their history where we are right now. On the brink of disaster, turning their backs against God, making a show of faith, but really not following through. And there was a preacher that was warning everybody, hey, trouble is coming, trouble is coming. Well, they put him in jail. So while he's in jail, he decides to write down all the messages that God has given him. Thus saith the Lord. And he calls a servant of his and he says, would you take this that I've written? And would you take it down to the temple? And whoever happens to be there, just read it. And the servant takes the writing down to the temple. He said, I read to you the word of the Lord as given to the prophet Jeremiah. And he reads the words of the Lord. And people start crying. People start to rent their clothes, a sign of despair. People start to fall on their faces before God saying, Oh God, have mercy. We're, we have sinned. We are in trouble. And some of the leaders of the people were gathered there at the temple and they heard this. And they said, you know what? Somebody needs to bring this to the king. Now the king was a wicked man at that time named Jehoiakim. 
who was, by the way, the son of one of the godliest kings of Israel, Josiah. They said, somebody needs to bring that to the king and read it to him. So they bring it to the king, who just happens to be uh, reclining with a nice fire there. And so he's in a place and time of luxury and got a fire burning. And a messenger comes and says, uh, they brought this from the temple. It's written by Jeremiah. He claims it's the words of the Lord. And things are pretty riled up down there at the temple because people are, are crying out to God over what's written here. He said, go ahead, read it. He read a page. He read another page. He read another page. Jehoiakim pulls out his knife. He says, bring that over here. And he takes his knife and he runs it across the top of the scroll, cuts off the first page, throws it in the fire. The Bible doesn't say this, but I I picture this, and I think it's consistent with what's going on. The guys around just kind of snicker. (laughs) He takes his knife and he cuts another page, throws it in the fire. He winds up cutting the whole thing up and throwing it in the fire. What was he saying? God doesn't have any part of what we're doing here. And God's word doesn't mean anything to us. Now you say, well, how do they know it was God's word? That's funny because that's the same question that people who want to ignore God ask about the Bible today. How do we know that is the word of God? Well, I figured that out for myself. You're going to have to figure out the answer to that question for yourself. You're not going to get that answer from me by me telling you what I believe. You're going to have to seek the Lord. I paid the price on my knees when I was a teenager seeking the Lord. And that's why I live without doubt that I have the Word of God right here in my hand. You're going to have to do the same. How do I know the Bible is the Word of God? Seek the Lord. Ask Him to show you. Which, uh, incredibly, open-minded people don't want to do. They don't fear the Lord. There is no fear of the Lord before their eyes. It means... They do not factor the existence of God into their, uh, into their worldview. They do not factor the word of God into their decisions. And it also means that they do not factor the judgment of God into their actions. Years before this guy Jehoiakim, who by the way was destroyed, and the nation was destroyed. But years before Jehoiakim, in the northern kingdom of Israel was a king named Ahab and his wonderful wife, Jezebel. Ahab was in his house one day, and he looked out his window, and he said, you know what, I don't own that property over there. I own everything else around my palace, but I don't own that property over there. That would be the perfect location for an herb garden. And so he calls one of his servants, and says, could you find out who owns that property over there and see if he'd be willing to talk about an offer? And so his servant goes over there and finds out that it's a a vineyard and it belongs to a man named Naboth. And the servant came back and he said, I talked to the owner. The owner's name is Naboth. And he said that's the inheritance of his father's and he's not willing to negotiate. Now, can I tell you, in, in... Israel, when a man said, this is the inheritance of my fathers, I'm not willing to negotiate, 
That, I'm telling you, that was the equivalent in our day of a man saying, number one, I believe the Bible and I will not budge. Number two, I believe the Constitution and I will not budge. That was the equivalent of what he was saying. It wasn't just, this belongs to me, it's in the family, it's in... No, an Israelite's inheritance was a matter of patriotism, it was a matter of personal heritage, and it was a matter of faith. So he comes back and he says he won't negotiate. Something to do with his fathers and inheritance and stuff. So King Ahab goes and he starts to pout. His wife comes home and she finds her husband pouting. She said, what's, what's, what are you pouting about? He said, man, I don't want a herb garden out the window over there. And I just kind of talked to him and he went over and he said he wouldn't want to sell it because he said father inherited it. She said, would you grow up and act like a man? She said, I'll fix it. I'll give you that vineyard. It'll be yours. She calls in a few guys. She pays them money to spread some rumors about Naboth. And so there's these lies and accusations floating around about Naboth. And it gets the attention of the enforcers of the law. Naboth's arrested. The false accusers speak at his trial. And he's executed. And Jezebel gets the news and she goes into Ahab and she goes, I got your herb garden for you. The Bible shows Ahab out there working in his herb garden. He's oh, I got my herb. He doesn't care about, he doesn't care about who died. He doesn't care about the principles. He doesn't care about God and heritage and the law of, of Moses. See, that's what happens, by the way, when we don't know our heritage. He didn't, he was the king and he didn't care. He got his herb garden. And the prophet Elijah comes. He says, hey, King Ahab. And King Ahab says, what do you want, you troublemaker? He said, oh, you're your own troublemaker. He said, you stole this from a godly man. You ignored God. He said, because you did, you're going to pay. He said, on this very land... The dogs will lick your blood. And he said, your wife, the dogs are going to eat her remains. <laughs> it scared Ahab a little bit. He did a little bit of repenting, but he still enjoyed his herb garden. The Bible goes on to tell the story. You can read it for yourself. I believe it's 1 Kings 22. Ahab went out to battle. He had long forgotten this. He went out to battle. He disguised himself so that they wouldn't know he was the king of Israel. And he had somebody else dress up as the king so that if they were going to shoot at the king, they would shoot at the other guy and not him. What a weenie. And so somebody goes to shoot. The enemy goes to shoot an arrow at the guy who was dressed up. And they say, whoa, that's not Ahab. But it says, by chance... By chance, somebody did shoot at Ahab. And, and he says to his servant, take me out of the battle I've been hit. And I bet you anything, the Bible doesn't say this, but I bet you anything, as he lay dying out there at the side of the battlefield, he thought, well, 
I may be dying, but he didn't die where Elijah said I would die. doesn't say that, but I wouldn't be surprised if those were some of his last thoughts. And he died out there on the battlefield. And his blood's all over his royal chariot. So the Bible says they took his own servants, took the royal ch- i got to get this arrow out of my chest. Took the royal chariot. And guess where they took it to wash it out? They took it to his herb garden. I can see the guy whistling, just hosing it out, and the blood's washing out, and the dog's. The Bible says, lick the blood, just like Elijah said. See, when Ahab and, and boy, Jezebel's ending is more gruesome than that. When Ahab and Jezebel were figuring out how to get what they wanted, they didn't factor in the judgment of God. Now understand, when I say judgment of God, we write right away here, wrath of God. That may, it may come to the wrath of God, but that's not what it means. The judgment of God is God assessing the situation and deciding what needs to be done. He uses his judgment. He passes judgment. Hey, you can get a judgment from a judge that is good news. Judgment is not always necessarily a bad thing. But we... Have to, if we fear the Lord, we have to consider God's judgment. What I do here in this situation, God is going to assess it and make a decision. If you fear the Lord, you factor that in. Do you factor that into your decisions? Do you factor that into your actions? Well, I'm not a religious person. You think that exempts you from Almighty God and His judgment? On your actions? The man who doesn't fear the Lord means that he doesn't factor the existence of God into his worldview. He doesn't factor the word of God into his decisions and he does not factor the judgment of God into his actions. Now we're going to wind it down here. I want you to notice that phrase before their eyes. There is no, the fear of the Lord I better read it for you. It says, The transgressions of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a very important phrase. It means that they can't see the fear of the Lord. The things that I just described to you, they can't see it. Now, there would be three reasons that I can think of why they wouldn't see it, why a person wouldn't see the fear of the Lord. Number one, because they've never been shown the fear of the Lord. Number two... Because they were shown the fear, though they were raised as a God-fearing man, but they've sort of drifted from it. Whether intentionally or not intentionally, they've just sort of gotten away from it. They used to care what God thinks. Now they've gotten old. They don't care what God thinks anymore. Or number three, they've consciously blocked it out. Did you ever have something in your life that reminded you of righteousness, like, oh, your Bible maybe? Have you ever had to move your Bible off the table that it was on because you didn't want to see your Bible while that movie was on? 
There's no fear of God before their eyes because they moved it. I got to tell you, I think there's a certain percentage of people that that verse is describing. There is no fear of God before their eyes who have moved the fear of God out of their life on on purpose. They have rationalized away the existence of God, the word of God, the judgment of God. They have covered it up to soothe their conscience. They have moved him aside so it's not in their peripheral view of life. I think there's a certain percentage of those people for whom it either has become or will become hopeless. You chose to move God out. And you can cross a line where God says, you put me in storage, that's where I'll stay. stay. You're done. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I don't ever like to just give bad news. I like to give good news. The good news is you don't have to live that way. Let me show you the opposite. See, the first step in the direction of success is the fear of the Lord. iPhone has its success. I'm going to tell you how to get success. Is that too clever for you? Or did you totally miss that? Okay. I'm going to tell you how to get your success here. All right. Turn to Psalm 111. Okay, if you get it now, don't laugh because you're just really making yourself look foolish from here on out, okay? If it took that long. All right. Psalm 111, verse number 10. Let's read the first half of the verse together. We're almost done with the message here. Psalm 111, verse number 10. Read it with me. Ready? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Stop. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, we have the person who says... The fear of the Lord, you know what? That's not helping me, so I'm going to move it aside. Or we have the person that has drifted in their life so that even though mom and dad taught them the fear of the Lord, and even though grandma and grandpa taught them the fear of the Lord, they've drifted so far away from it that they can't see it anymore. Or we have the person, as we had several people yesterday, there's some of you talked to that said, I've never heard that. And then we have you and me who have the opportunity to consciously say, I'm going to put the fear of the Lord right in the center of my life. I'm going to consider His person in everything I do. I'm going to consult His Word in everything I do. I'm going to consider His judgment in everything I do, that my my actions are going to come into judgment before God, and I want to get a favorable verdict. Well done. That is the beginning of wisdom. And let me tell you, wisdom will take you everywhere you need to go in life. When you decide to fear the Lord, you take the first step towards success. You take the first step towards thinking right. Don't raise your hand. How many of us may have made some really bad decisions? The fear of the Lord is the first step towards making really good decisions. The fear of the Lord is the first step towards a strong marriage. The fear of the Lord is the first step towards successful child rearing. 
The fear of the Lord is the first step towards a successful career. The fear of the Lord is the first step towards solid finances. The fear of the Lord is the first step towards a stable life. The fear of the Lord is the first step towards strong relationships. The fear of the Lord is the first step towards peace of mind. You understand that everything I'm listing here, the fear of the Lord is the first step towards emotional stability. Everything I'm listing here, the whole world is looking for every day. You can see it in the commercials. You can hear it in the talk shows. You can can hear Dr. Phil talk about it. Dr. Oz talk about it. Steve Harvey talk about it. They talking about it on The View. Oh, I don't, I, I, don't have, I, I don't have a stomach for any of those shows. In the waiting room at the hospital the other day, I waited an hour for my turn, and the view was on for that entire hour. And I wound up sicker than when I walked in. <laughs> That's what they're, they're talking about nonstop is how to get all the things that I just listed for you, and I'm telling you the first step towards all those. No, I'm not telling you. God's telling you, the first step towards all those things is wisdom. And the first step of wisdom is putting the fear of the Lord in the center of your life. The gap between the way you live and the way the rest of the world lives that doesn't believe God is bigger than it's ever been before. You're going to feel more and more like an oddball. I'm just shooting straight with you. You're going to feel more and more like an oddball if you're going to live the way God says to live. You're going to feel more and more like an oddball at work, in your family, and your family, you know, they won't sit near you anymore at the family get-togethers. Why? Because, oh, man, I mean, they don't even miss church. They they won't go to Foxwoods anymore with us. And, and, uh, you know, they won't even have a social drink with us anymore. And uh, they never curse anymore, not even a little bit. And, uh, you know, I just don't get it. And so we're going to sit a little further away from you than we used to. But if you want your life to be blessed of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. Let's bow for prayer. Father.